Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Hello and welcome and thank you for coming out on this chilly Sydney night. For those of you who aren't from Sydney, this is a chilly Sydney night. If you're in Melbourne, it's balmy. I'm Fran Kelly from ABC Radio National Breakfast, so you'll know I'm well past my bedtime already. Um, but no, I really do appreciate and love the way um, citizens come out to talk and discuss and debate more and more. It happens across the country in cities around Australia. It's fantastic. Tonight, we're talking about forward thinking, but I'm going to go backwards for a minute. On the 28th of September last year, Australia was forced to admit we faced a national energy crisis. That was the day that the power went out across South Australia. An almighty storm with gale force winds took out the power lines, tripped transmission switches, triggered wind farms to cut their output, and ultimately forced the main interconnectors, the backup power supply from the national grid, to shut down. There were 80,000 lightning strikes that day, two tornadoes, and winds which damaged 23 electricity transmission pylons. The lights went out across Adelaide and across the state. And it was peak hour. Shocking. It was a once in 50 year event. But that didn't save the state government from a bollocking from its citizens or from the federal government, which didn't skip a beat before it pointed the finger of blame at the Weather or Labor government and its ambitious renewable energy target. The political blame game, I'm sure you remember, was ferocious and it was transparent. And there's a fair bit of evidence, I think, to suggest that quite quickly the voters made it clear that they weren't buying it. They knew in their bones that governments, state and federal, and the regulators had bungled energy policy, which had led inexorably to higher electricity bills and blackouts. How else to explain that a country with some of the largest coal and gas reserves in the world, not to mention strong winds and blazing sun, couldn't cope, couldn't deliver reliable and affordable power? Sensing the voter fury, the Prime Minister decided to act. Just nine days after the South Australian blackout, the Prime Minister commissioned our Chief Scientist, Dr Alan Finkel, to run an independent review into energy security across the national electricity market. Eight months later, and almost three weeks ago now, Alan Finkel delivered his energy security blueprint, which has unleashed a fresh round of argument, suspicion, name-calling and political point scoring. And, it should be said, and it must be said, a fair bit of applause, loud cheering from many quarters. But will it eventually deliver us better energy policy, more reliable, secure and sustainable power? I think the answer to that is yes, though for now it is in the hands of our political masters. But rather than wait around for them to ruin some good policy with bad politics, the Grattan Institute has decided to take matters into its own hands, which it does so well and so often, and to use this energy review to come up with some forward thinking on energy policy bringing together this panel of experts tonight to help the country respond to challenges that the, uh, the challenges our electricity system faces as we try and shift towards, or need to shift towards, a low emissions future. Leading the discussion tonight, I'm happy to say, is the Chief Scientist himself. Dr Alan Finkel has had the job for 18 months. He comes to it, if you don't know already, with an extensive science background as an entrepreneur, an engineer, a neuroscientist and an educator. Prior to becoming Australia's chief scientist, he was the eighth chancellor of Monash University and the eighth president of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. He's got a PhD in electrical engineering, a postdoctoral research fellow he was in neuroscience, co-founder of Cosmos magazine, and has a long, long commitment to fostering secondary school science. 
Joining Alan Finkel on our panel tonight is Marianne Lowry. She's the Executive Director of ASIL Allen Consulting Sydney office. She's had more than 50, 30 years, sorry Marianne, I'm ageing you, <laughs> 30 years of experience working in energy sector, regulator, industry and government. Prior to joining ASIL Allen in 2010, Marianne was the Executive Director responsible for providing advice to the Victorian Government on energy policy, including States and Territories National Emissions Trading Scheme, the very original Victorian Renewable Energy Target Scheme, the Victorian Energy Efficiency Target Scheme, deregulating energy retail prices, the rollout of smart meters, feed-in tariffs and the transfer of state-based economic, reg uh, economic regulation to the national framework. So I think she's should just about do the trick for us tonight. And Tony Wood is the Energy Program Director at Grattan, has been since 2011. Before that, Tony spent 14 years at Origin Energy in senior executive roles. Also, from 2009 to 2014, Tony was Program Director of Clean Energy Projects at the Clinton Foundation, in which he advised governments in the Asia-Pacific region on effective deployment of large-scale, low-emission energy technologies. In 2008, he was seconded to provide an energy perspective to the first Gano Climate Change Review. Remember that? How far we have not come. So a panel of experts, well qualified, absolutely, to come up with some forward thinking tonight. We will hear from each of them individually, then we'll have a very short panel discussion here on stage, and then we will hand over to you. So there will be a some time for questions at the end. Also, um, pointing out the Twitter handle to you, it's up there if you forget it, uh, uh, hashtag forward thinking, or at Grattan Inst, or at State Library New South Wales. So we'll bring that up through the night if you need to recall it. Turn off your mobile phones. I'm just reminded by one that went off then. Um, it's very helpful if you can. To kick off this important discussion tonight and to speak directly to the findings of his energy security review, could you please welcome now Australia's Chief Scientist, Dr Alan Finkel. <laughs> Fran, thanks. That was a terrific overview when you talked about the storms on September the 28th. Storms come and go and now they're in national politics and still continuing. Uh, can everybody hear me fine? So I'm going to give you a quick overview of the main things that were in our minds and that we recommended. Uh, I want to start off by just painting what you probably know, but let me paint it my own way, the traditional electricity generation system. Basically, you started off with centralised generation, coal, gas, large-scale hydro, um, going through the transmission network, the distribution network, through the retailer on its way to the consumer, whether it was a residential consumer or a commercial or industrial consumer, and that was the traditional system for which the NEM, maybe I'll call it NEM 1.0, for which NEM 1.0 was designed and for a long time served us very well. But then, Along came disruption, and you can't switch off disruption, and there are many, many disruptive factors here. So let me go through a few. There's that traditional network. The first one is large-scale solar and wind. Doesn't matter what you believe about climate change, they are here, they're lower cost than most other generation, even at large scale, and even if to some extent they're firmed up. It's the 
really the investor's choice now. And then down the bottom right, I'm showing solar on rooftops. We've got well in excess of one and a half million solar micro generators on people's houses. They're contributing and changing the dynamics of the system. Then you've got battery storage. On the left hand lower, I'm showing battery storage for grids and, and hydro storage for the grid. But on the bottom right, I'm showing batteries in homes. This will completely change the load patterns in the electricity network. I've got some arrows going the other direction. The system is becoming a two-way system. It wasn't designed that way, but it has to be that because people are feeding their micro-generation off their rooftops back into the grid, and that changes the way it operates. You can't reverse this. Then at the top right, I'm showing, um, you know, like from Matrix, the little ones and zeros, automation behind the meter. People can make their energy use more efficient through digital technologies and they can also and there are trials beginning on this consider peer-to-peer -peer trading where the electricity flows from one house to a neighbor's house not by throwing a wire across the fence you can't do that that flow has to be through the distribution network so the system is being called on to do things that was never envisaged and it's it's like a, a, a bulldozer you can't stop this disruption but there's more disruption Price increases and volatility, I don't have time to go through the why and the wherefore, but as you know, prices are more volatile and higher than they were. Um, there's external disruptions. We have national commitments to reducing our emissions. Some people are trying to suggest that they're not commitments, they're aspirations, but they are commitments that we've made nationally. And they also have a disruptive impact on the operation of the national electricity market. And then Fran was talking about storms, 23 pylons went down, there's one of them, we've got disruption through storms, uh, increasing heat waves, and now we've got the brand new one that's sort of everybody is aware of now, which is cyber attack and cyber threats. We're running a sophisticated system, ever more sophisticated. The more sophisticated it is, the more subject it is to disruption through external threats. So what you've been seeing for years now is increasing tension. People realise for several years now that the national electricity market needs a deep dive review. There have been a lot of small focused reviews, but the tension was increasing. On September 28th, it literally got to breaking point. And so the uh, Prime Minister, the Federal Minister, Coag Energy Council decided that they needed a major review into the future design of the national electricity market. And through Coag Energy Council, they established the independent review into the future security of the national electricity market. Try saying that 10 times fast, it's not easy. So it's now known as the Finkel Review. And the answer is yes, I'm used to it. Uh, we like to subtitle it as the blueprint for the future. So a lot of people have asked, how do we go about the process? It's worth talking about it. We, we really put a lot of effort into it. There's nothing in our report that is a thought bubble. Everything was considered a panel. I've got two of my panel members here, Karen Moses, and somewhere I saw Mary O'Kane come in. Uh, it was a panel of experts supported by a very talented task force from the Department of Environment and Energy. We sweated every single thought. But we took a lot of inputs, a lot of consultation. 120 meetings with stakeholders. Uh, numerous consultations around the country, 450 people attended, 390 submissions 
put to the to the review and some of those submissions dozens of those submissions were 40 or 50 page documents that were worthy of being a review in and of themselves the willingness the enthusiasm across the country for people to see a resolution to the future security and stability and affordability of the national electricity market is just huge everybody wants to see progress um, we uh, went on a, a um, trip around Europe to meet the operators and the regulators in European countries, in American states, um, to meet some of the large companies that are developing new technologies, and that was very informative. We commissioned a report from the International Energy Agency to look at world's best practice and give some consideration to the context for Australia of those practices. We contracted to a, a reputable economics company, Jacobs Group, to do policy scenario modelling, an emissions intensity scheme, a clean energy target, uh, regulated closure, business as usual, etc. And we got the Melbourne Energy Institute, which is a, a group of professional power systems engineering academics at the University of Melbourne Faculty of Engineering, to look at the results of our policy modelling and tell us whether we were meeting the security and reliability ambitions. And we were, and we did. One of the overwhelming messages that would have come from 385 out of 390 submissions is that business as usual is not acceptable. It just cannot be, it cannot be sustained. We need to change, in the light of all these disruptions, the way we operate the NEM, the National Electricity Market. The last thing I'll mention on our approach is the methodology that we intellectually used in approaching this. We took an engineering approach where we said you can't pursue perfection. You can't afford to build a bridge like that if all you've got in mind is perfection. It's just too expensive. But you certainly cannot tolerate compromise if you're building a bridge because the consequences of failure from a compromise are severe. What you have to do is optimise the approach. And I, I deeply believe that the package of 50 recommendations that we've put forward is an optimised package that does provide what we were asked to provide, which is the blueprint for NEM 2.0, or the future of the national electricity market. Okay, we focused on outcomes rather than inputs and outputs, and it's, it's, it's really a significant thing to keep in mind, and I'll come back to that. So we focus on four outcomes, and we have three enabling pillars to ensure that we can achieve those outcomes. So the four outcomes are the ones that you've heard me talk about a lot, and you'll see in the press, you'll see the ministers talking about security, reliability, affordability, and lower emissions. The pillars that are supporting that are the orderly transition, system planning and stronger governance. Now, I've been told I'm not allowed to speak for two hours, so I cannot go through all of the details here. What I'm going to do in the next few slides is just a few examples of some of the outcome-oriented recommendations and a couple of the enabling pillars. So if we talk about reliability, one of the significant recommendations that we've made is called the Generator Reliability Obligation, the GRO. And what that's saying is that all new generators, and I emphasize new because we're not recommending that anything be retrospective, that all new generation, uh, in order to be licensed to connect to the grid, has to have a certain capability to dispatch electricity when needed. 
and the level of that capability should be determined by the experts, AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator, and AMC, the, the commission that makes the rules. So they'll look at needs and economics on a per-region basis. So the needs of Queensland today are different to the needs of South Australia today and that should be kept in mind. But when they make the determination, it has to be forward-looking. So one way of doing that would be, for example, at a wind farm, to have battery backup, so that if you're going into a hot summer day with extreme temperatures, the operator can say to that company, you have to enter the day with charged batteries, hold them in reserve, and be available to deliver electricity at the end of the day, even if there's no wind blowing, and it happens, it's a typical weather pattern in Victoria and South Australia that you get virtually no wind on those really hot days. And at 4.30 in the afternoon, the sun is so low that the fixed panels aren't generating anything, you need that energy. It doesn't have to be done with batteries. It can be done with on-site generators, off-site generators. It can be done with um, contracts between the wind farm or the solar farm and other new generation coming into the market. But that's an important uh, obligation that ensures that we can have the electricity when we need it, even from variable renewable energy. <clears throat> Another outcome is to try to achieve longest, lowest cost in the long term. We can't do anything overnight. And one of the things we've recognised out of many is the important role of consumers in this equation. There's a lot of opportunity through what's called demand management to manage the current or the power that houses and commercial and industrial consumers pull at the times of high national load to shift that so that you don't have to supply those peak currents or the peak power. Not everybody can participate. The ones who do participate, they need to be rewarded financially. The ones who don't participate, they will get rewarded because by managing that peak load, you can avoid the need to invest in more expensive transmission and distribution assets. So everybody will benefit, and you don't need quite as much generation if you're avoiding those peaks. So it can lower the cost for everybody. Another one is to lower the long-term cost by providing policy certainty. What is concerning all of the uh, investors in generation technology and anything in the national electricity market, even if it's behind the meter automation, is policy reversals, policy flip-flops, the complete uncertainty. And the forward contracts that people write are at higher prices because of that uncertainty and ultimately that feeds through into the prices we pay. Investors understand they can't have investment certainty. They're asking for policy certainty so that they get predictability of their investment. They're willing to take a chance. If the market demand doesn't work out as they think, that's fine. What they don't want is policy reversals. Imagine you're Christopher Columbus. You want to know when you're sailing off that at least there's a prospect of land beyond the horizon rather than a guarantee of nothing. Um, another outcome that we modelled and have recommended is that the states, territories and the national government agree to an emissions redu reduction trajectory. Now on that graph I'm showing you the in the blue line at the left the existing uh, trajectory of emissions, a little bit of grey which is what we think might happen for the next three years and then the brown line is the trajectory that we modelled. We didn't recommend it, it's up to governments to decide what to do but that's what we modelled. Going through 28% which is a critical um, number for our Paris commitments across the whole economy, but we modelled it for the electricity sector, down to zero in the second half of the century. The important thing is not the numbers, 28% or 2070, 
but that it's a smooth line. We need to move away from the idea of a 2030 target. You get there and you say, what next? Investors need to know that there's a process, a framework, an architecture in place into the future. On the key pillars, the orderly transition, there are three elements to our orderly transition. The first is that there's a national agreement of states, territories and the uh, Commonwealth government to an emissions reduction trajectory. The second is that there's a clean energy target, a mechanism to uh, ensure that we meet that trajectory. And the third is a three-year notice of closure obligation on large generators. It doesn't have to be coal, it could be hydro. Anything where the removal from the network would have significant impact, you need time for new generation to come in. You need a three-year notice. And also, if it's a large coal generator, which is going to have an impact on communities, you need time for local, state and federal governments to work with the communities to deal with the disruption, the dislocation, the economic disruption of the removal of that big industry. And historically, in the last five or six years, all the big coal generators have closed with one, three or five months notice. It's, it's very short. Um, stronger governance. The current governance arrangement is Coag Energy Council, which should be very high level, directly having under its um, uh, control the three energy market bodies, the operator, the rule maker and the regulator. Um, there's such a large difference between what they do and how they do it that it's not actually very efficient. And so we've recommended that a new board called an Energy Security Board come along and exists by delegated authority from Coag Energy Council to have a number of responsibilities. The first is to deliver the blueprint. So if our blueprint is accepted, the ESB, the Energy Security Board, will ensure that it's delivered. They'll also provide coordination and an annual health check that will report on performance, opportunities and risks in the national electricity market to COAG. And we've also made a number of specific suggestions about strengthening the individual bodies, and the government actually acted on one uh, by giving more money to AER, the regulator, um, in its announcement last week. Okay, I mentioned before inputs and outputs versus outcomes. Most people look at the NEM and they think about things like the wholesale price as being an important metric that we have to achieve, lower wholesale price. But no one pays wholesale price. You pay an industrial retail price or a, or a residential retail price. A lot of people talk about the generation mix. They hate coal or they love coal. They hate gas or they love gas. They love wind or they hate wind. But it's not important from the point of view of outcomes. It's an input to the system. What counts are the key outcomes, the increased security, the reliability, the emissions, and the lowest costs. Those are what we need to manage. How we do it, the mix of inputs and outputs, people need to get it out of their mind and focus on the outcomes rather than the generation mix and other inputs and outputs. Okay, we did modelling, as I mentioned. Um, we modelled based on an outcome. Emissions are an outcome. But most people talk about targets um, based on renewable energy as a percentage of the generation mix, the gigawatt hours. I put it to you, that's just an output. It's not the outcome, but it's important because it gets discussed a lot. So when we modelled it, the 28% emissions reduction in 2030, which is the right outcome to have in your mind, corresponds to 42% renewables in 2030. In terms of costs, um, the modelling showed that the blue line at the bottom, which is the 
I think we've got that wrong. The um, bottom line is the clean energy target. Uh, the middle one is the emissions intensity scheme and the grey one at the top is business as usual. What we've seen is that either of these mechanisms, the EIS or the CET, do better than business as usual. The clean energy target, if the legend was correct, comes in a little bit lower in price. Now, people say to me, oh, you know, models, it depends on the assumptions, and they're right. We can't say with the modelling what the price will be for sure in 2035, but we can be confident that the relative merits of one policy versus another is represented in the modelling. Finally, where are we? The progress, the situation today. So um, I had the privilege of presenting to COAG Energy Council on uh, Friday, June the 9th, and just 11 days later, on Tuesday last week, the uh, federal government, the Commonwealth, announced that they're accepting 49 of the 50 recommendations. So I see that as a glass nearly full kind of scenario. Actually, in my mind, it's actually full because they haven't rejected the 50th. The 50th is the big one. It's the emissions, it's the orderly transition, the emissions re reduction trajectory and the mechanism. They're genuinely considering it. We don't know where they'll land. You might have noticed there's a lot of discussion about it at the moment. I don't know where it'll land, but it's quite encouraging that 49 of the 50 have been accepted so far. But of course, we'd like to have 50. Uh, so the next step will be the COAG Energy Council uh, meeting where they'll have a discussion, and that's about two or three weeks from now in the middle of July. So the 49 recommendations when I say accepted, it really is that the Commonwealth Government has endorsed them and asked or empowered the Minister, Joshua Frydenberg, to go to COAG Energy Council and convey that endorsement to the ministers at the state and territory level. Because ultimately, electricity policy in this country is a state and territory working with the Commonwealth Government uh, uh, agreement. It's not federal constitutionally supported uh, legislation. Pretty much that's, that's it. Um, the quote up there is something I mentioned at the National Press Club. It comes from a, a historical novel. Everything must change so that everything can stay the same. If we want the national electricity market to stay the same in its ability to provide the outcomes, security, reliability, affordability, and low emissions, we have to accept that the inputs and outputs and the operation will all change. Thank you. Thank you. The Chief Scientist, Dr Alan Finkel, thank you very much. That was uh, such a terrific sort of journey through the Finkel Review. Thank you. Um, I'd like now to introduce our other two panellists. First, welcome to the stage, Marianne Lowry from ASIL Allen Consulting, as I mentioned, a three-decade veteran of the energy sector from all its different um, vantage points. Please welcome Marianne Lowry. Uh, thank you, Fran, and thank you to the panel for producing the blueprint. I'd also like to thank Tony and the Grattan Institute for giving me the opportunity to participate in this panel today. But I must say that the views that I express today are mine and mine alone and do not represent the views of ASIL Allen Consulting. So, South Australia's system black last year was a wake-up call, and the only surprise about it was that it took so long to happen. For some time now, we have needed to refocus on what we are trying to achieve with the NEM and the best practice ways of going about it. There are a lot of recommendations in the panel's report, many of which appear eminently sensible. There is plenty of work to be done to turn these recommendations into practical actions. 
But I want to step back from the specifics for a moment and talk about those broader objectives and what breast practice should look like. So let's go back to first principles. Markets work. But there has never been an unregulated market in history. Even open warfare has its rules. So the starting question is what level of government policy is appropriate to helping rather than hindering the electricity market to work best? That market is large and it's complicated. It provides a critical economic input. It serves a large number of consumers in different ways and across different locations. It involves real-time and long-term decision-making. And historically, it has been neither significantly transparent nor accessible to most of its customers. For these reasons, it has been appropriate for the market to be more rather than less heavily regulated. And what a lot of regulation we now have. On top of a core national set of rules designed to optimise the post-Hilmer supply chain, there is also a bewildering array of policies and prescriptions intended to address technology changes, jurisdictional issues and customer protections. And as the electricity industry continues its paradigm shifting transformation, the temptation is to pile on even more regulation. Policy makers, not the markets, now have a significant say in how the trade-offs between security, reliability, affordability, sustainability and safety of electricity supply are made. But it is not done consistently across the jurisdictions and it tends to focus on addressing short-term challenges rather than supporting the long-term development of the market where suppliers and consumers are increasingly able to manage those trade-offs themselves. In short, it has become a costly and unwieldy mess. No one could put their hand on their heart and say that the current level of government intervention is efficient. To be clear, I agree that the nature of electricity services are such that regulation is needed. I'm also sympathetic to the view that government has a larger role to play during times of significant transition. However, the guiding principles should always be to have as little regulation as possible and for it to be as consistent as possible. As a transition approaches completion, the transitional policies should be removed. As the combination of technology and policies enable greater participation in the NEM, governments should step back and not continue to act as a proxy for those participants. It is entirely natural, indeed important, to focus on reliability and security of supply following system events such as last year's system black in Australia. On safety, following the Victorian Black Saturday bushfires in 2009. On sustainability in the lead up to international agreements on climate change and on affordability following price hikes. But any such policy changes should be placed within the context of supporting the development of a market that allows the participants to address those dimensions themselves as far as practical, with governments setting boundaries and mechanisms designed to signal them only where necessary. So let's look at some current policy examples. Many of the policies introduced by government since the start of the NEM have facilitated the reform of the market. Others have been purpose have been fit for purpose tools for delivering environmental and safety outcomes. However, others have had adverse impacts. We have had jurisdictions introduce policy initiatives with no regard to the impact they have on other jurisdictions. Policy decisions have been made to increase jobs in a particular sector 
with no understanding of the impact of that on the energy markets and the flow on of impacts to the broader economy. We have had policy decisions made that have a positive impact in the short term with little consideration of the longer term impacts. One of the attractions of policy initiatives that drive more supply into the market than is required is the initial decrease in prices. But prices inevitably increase again as either demand increases or supply decreases. And we have policy initiatives that have outlived their use by date. Policy initiatives have been designed to facilitate learnings in the market or to drive down the cost of new technologies, but these remain, which only increases the cost to consumers. I've already noted that governments have a role to protect the interests of consumers, particularly vulnerable consumers. We cannot forget that ultimately, it is generally electricity customers that pay the price for the energy policy decisions that are made by governments. But we are also in a world where policy decisions can make, cannot be made unless no customer is worse off. However, if some customers are subsidising others, then those that are being subsidised will, by definition, be worse off if cross-subsidies are removed. But is it both efficient and fair that these customers continue to not pay for the costs of supplying them with electricity and in doing so pay their fair share? Should the majority of customers, including vulnerable customers, continue to pay more so that the minority that are subsidised do not have to pay more? The concessions regime is the means to protect the most vulnerable customers. If some customers will be worse off by a policy decision, then concessions can be used to mitigate the adverse impact for them. However, the vast majority of customers are in a position to pay efficient prices and their fair share. But concessions are currently paid to a relatively proportion, large proportion of customers. Certainly in Victoria, where I know the figures more, it's in the order of 30%. And because it's paid to so many, the amount that is paid is relatively small for those that are the most vulnerable in our society. Ultimately, without the appropriate level of support by governments, this small proportion of customers is cross-subsidised by other electricity customers, including low-income but not vulnerable customers. And in the absence of appropriate supports for the most vulnerable customers, suboptimal energy policy decisions are often made. But now returning to the panel's blueprint. As we've been advised, the Commonwealth has responded quickly, agreeing to all but one of the recommendations. As I noted earlier, and given the strength of the response to the blueprint, there is significant work remaining to actually implement these recommendations, particularly for the jurisdictions to agree on a clear way forward to reduce emissions and provide the investment certainty that is required or I should say policy certainty, based on our previous presentation. Uh, bold decision-making is required to adopt a truly national approach to the energy market, to introduce new markets for services that have previously been taken for granted, such as inertia, to remove policy initiatives that have outlived their use by date, and to make decisions that deliver the greatest public benefit, while appropriately protecting the most vulnerable in our society. As discussed earlier, there is a diverse range of views on the appropriate balance of the characteristics of the energy supply. Reliability, security, affordability, sustainability and safety. 
So we were told, you know, the, the outcomes that everyone wants are the same, but the balance between each of those will vary with each individual. And I could almost guarantee that everybody in this room would probably agree with the four outcomes, but their balance of those four outcomes are going to vary enormously. So given the diverse range of views, it is not surprising that it is difficult to get agreement within governments on energy policy issues, as we've seen with the Commonwealth Government, and even more difficult getting agreement across the jurisdictions. So our energy policy is now at a crossroads. Will governments draw on the skills and experience that are required to assist them to appropriately implement the recommendations in the blueprint? Or will they continue to respond to vested interests and intervene in the market, adversely impacting on the reliability, security and affordability of energy, while not appropriately protecting the interests of the most vulnerable customers in our society? Thank you. Well, I think you know the big question there, Marianne, and we uh, wait with bated breath. Marianne Lowry, thank you. Could you please now welcome our third panellist this evening. Tony Wood is the Energy Program Director for the Grattan Institute. And uh, Tony will share his thoughts on the, um, the uh, Finkel Review and the way forward. Thank you, Tony Wood. Thanks, Van. I should also mention that I'd like to thank the State Library who um, partner with us in running these events. Um, just so happens that this room um, has, seems to have shrunk slightly since the last time we were in it, given the number of people here tonight. Uh, I made a comment in a piece I wrote in the last few days that the, um, the battlefield of climate policy is littered with dead bodies of political leaders and the question that seems to me was whether or not Malcolm Turnbull will actually be the second, um, this time around will be his second death um, as someone who's tried to lead a change in climate policy. It remains to be seen whether that's the case but I think it's certainly set up in a way that's more than challenging and of course uh, that comment was made in the context when the other side of the issue, energy policy, was reasonably plain sailing. Uh, back in 2007-08 when a lot of the debate took place around the first attempt to get a climate policy in place, uh, the rest of it seemed to be going okay. Um, from then on it didn't go so okay. And so we've seen a, a lot of challenges in which now we see a situation in which those things that should be going up, um, mainly reliability seems to be going the other way, and those things that should be going down, mainly price seems to be going the other way. And so how this plays out is very challenging for governments. The, Alan showed one of his slides there, a, a square-masted sailing ship, um, sailing into the uh, sunrise or sunset maybe. I'm not entirely sure that was the ship um, before he got hold of it or after he finishes with it, but I'd like to think that it's the, it's the latter. I suspect that actually the ship that he's designed, he's certainly refitted, refurbished and, and re-engineered the ship of energy and climate policy. Um, I just wonder whether or not the 50th recommendation might be the navigator that the ship might still need before it can actually sail into the future we're looking for. So what I was going to do just in a few minutes is uh, make a few comments on a couple of the, uh, what I found from a policy perspective, some of the more interesting elements of the review, some of which um, Alan's referred to in a couple he hasn't emphasised in the same way. The first thing is that in some ways it seems to me the climate policy element was both the most important but also the least important. And the reason I say that is because there are many different climate policies that one could use that would work with the energy market, um, pretty much except the ones we've tried so far. Uh, eventually we might get around to realising that. So our view when we looked at some of this, and um, 
was, look, there's this group of policies over here, and you can call them emissions trading schemes, baseline and credit schemes, emissions intensity schemes. Just pick one uh, and let's get on with it. Um, Alan's, uh, on the basis of his work and the panel's work, have recommended a particular one. That's resulted in the furious debate we know about, but that was always going to be the case. Um, but it is now going to be almost imp important to which one, how do we avoid making too many um, compromises to get this uh, particular element of 50th recommendation actually afloat um, before we actually find that we've actually done it all again and we're back where we thought we were supposed to, um, we're back where we were uh, a, little, a little while ago with making no progress on the, on the issues. The, some of the elements in the report have challenged a lot of people and certainly the way the government's now moves even since Alan's report. So one of the things that is clear, it seems to me, is there has been a shift in what Alan's recommending or the panel's recommending from largely a system which was more market-based to one that has more central planning um, involved. You know, and I think anyone who saw Q&A would have heard Alan talk about how wouldn't it be good to have a plan? Well, that seems like a good idea until someone says, yes, but wait a second, if that plan involves government doing all the planning and doing all the investing, what's the role of the market? So there is going to be a tension there. I'm not, this is not a criticism of where Alan's landed. This is saying there is a real tension and how that's resolved and how the market operating organisations, particularly AEMO, deal with that tension will determine largely whether or not we go down the path of the UK approach, which is a fully centrally planned, regulated, and all the risks taken by the government on behalf of the consumers and not the investors, or where we do end up with a balance in which the investors can see the market operator as being more like the Reserve Bank when everybody knows governments can intervene but because we have a history of stable operation, they don't need to intervene. And you, don't, and you do see confidence in the, in the investors. And that's where that tension will play out. I think there are going to be some very significant challenges when this, uh, the recommendations are debated at, um, at the Coag Energy Council. I should note that I, it's been reported that many of the people who've criticised the Finkel blueprint haven't read it. My suspicion is that they may not have read the 49 they've recommended either because what worries me is there's a few in there which I think are quite interesting that they've gone through so easily for the federal government. For example, recommendation 3.1, which is that we should have by 2020 an economy-wide emissions reduction strategy for 2050. Now, I'm, like, I'm not trying to sort of spook anybody by hoping that someone goes running around saying, oh my God, have we really agreed to that? We'll now go back to 48. But it just seems to me that it's quite remarkable and therefore I'd take that as a... Um, as a badge of courage, as Alan has done, or a positive sign, that things are actually moving forward, that it's not um, as though we should be bemoaning the fact that one of the recommendations, an important one, is still sitting there, that actually there has been some real progress. Um, I think the, uh, the Energy Security Board, which sounds a little like a benign extra piece of regulatory structure, could still be challenging because in the review, in the, in the, in the blueprint, there have been some criticisms made of some particular elements of state government activity in this sector. Uh, for example, state-based climate change policies or renewable energy targets. For example, state-based moratorium and bans on unconventional gas development. Now, the review has been very careful not to suggest that governments, sovereign governments, can't or shouldn't make decisions. But it's also pointed out that one of the other recommendations is to have a new national energy market agreement. And the implication is that everyone agrees to play together. Now, I'm still concerned that as, we, as they get together, 
everyone will agree, of course we should all play together, we should just play the game according to my rules. And we've seen that in the energy market before, and that will be one of the tensions that plays out, because many of the recommendations in the review, uh, as been pointed out already, don't actually require legislation by the federal government. Alan made the point that many of them require changes uh, in the way the states and territories implement energy policy. Um, but turning back to the, the central issue for climate policy, and finally, um, you know, I think the, when you look at it, it's certainly what, what we would have said was the best policy, but the time that we've lost in when we had the opportunity to put in place the best, what we would have argued was a better policy, is it makes the difference irrelevant in the context of things. You can argue a lot about the finer points of this. There are economists who you can hire, depending upon your view, to prove that the numbers in Allen's modelling or the Finkel review modelling are wrong, but the difference is within the accuracy of the assumptions they've made to produce the result they want. It's almost irrelevant. And that's one of the reasons why, in a piece I wrote recently, I reminded people that it was the famous economist Galbraith who said that economic modelling has the only role of economic modelling is to make astrology look good. Um, <laughs> because it informs decisions in terms of risk assessment, but it shouldn't drive decisions. And we've all seen in Australia how making policy on the basis of economic modelling, on a forecast, goes horribly wrong. The renewable energy target suffered from that. The carbon tax in 2012-14 suffered from exactly that. Don't base your policy on the modelling, but use the modelling to inform it. And that's where I think you'll see these tools being misused. I think that industry needs to be a lot more vocal than it has been. I mean, you are hearing noise from industry generally very supportive of this package. Everybody will find bits, I suspect, that they don't like. Um, Everybody, as Marianne said, well, Marianne said, will have different priorities, but it's the overall approach. There are lots of detail that the Finkel Review hasn't specified. They will be important. It's also going to be a, a real challenge, as we now know, for the way things this is going to unfold, and not just within the very far right of the of the um, of the government. I mean, I did an interview um, the other morning. I was sitting in a property where I'm in, in northwest, in the northeast of Victoria. It was minus three degrees at eight o'clock in the morning, and I was doing an interview on AM with um, Sabra Lane. And it was supposed to be at eight o'clock, but it was delayed to five past eight. And the reason for that was because she was interviewing Senator Malcolm Roberts. Now, some of you may be aware of the views that Malcolm Roberts has on climate change and the Finkel Review. Um, they're probably printable, um, but they're very strong. And uh, that is the more extreme end of the positions held in the government. But there are others that are, I would argue, are asking far more reasonable questions, sometimes I would suggest in an unreasonable way. Some of them would like to go back to where the world used to look like in the square master sailing ship and suggest we should have a policy when the sea was flat and the waters were calm and we didn't have to make any changes. But that's not the world we live in. That's not the world that Alan's describing, the world we're in today. So it seems to me the message we have to think about is there are many uncertainties in this many uncertainties. The real trick is that we don't use nostalgia or astrology to make our decisions. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. That's right. As Alan said, business as usual is just not possible anymore. And I would suggest, and perhaps we'll get to this in the questions, that neither is um, deciding to look at the notion of a clean energy target or an emissions intensity scheme or whatever and they're deciding, no, no, 
we won't move again this time. We will do nothing again this time. So on that note, let's, I'd like to invite the panellists onto the stage and we'll begin the Q&A session. Thank you. Alan, I'll start with you. It's your blueprint. Congratulations, 49 out of 50 in such record time is incredible, I think, an incredible achievement given the attitudes and the the sort of the vibe, if you like, in the coalition party room. But the federal government clearly has some way to go on the 50th and if you've been listening to political debate in the last week, I think you couldn't help but think the things are going backwards on that level. Compromises can be made on the commun- on the clean energy target, you know, the threshold for credits, the role of new coal plants. How far can the clean energy target be compromised before it becomes ineffective? From a technical point of view, um, it can probably be visibly compromised and still remain in- in- effective. So. I'm guessing, Fran, the main number you've got in mind is the so-called threshold. Yeah. So the clean energy target, just to remind everybody, a threshold is set um, and generators below that, in terms of emissions, uh, say we modelled 0.6 tonnes per megawatt hour, 0.6 tonnes of carbon dioxide per megawatt hour of electricity. And a generator that operates below that gets a fraction of a certificate. If it's operating all the way below, like it's zero emissions, wind and solar, they get a whole certificate per megawatt hour. A really good modern gas generator would get about a half a certificate per megawatt hour. Um, An open cycle gas would get less. If you make that 0.6, 0.7, it doesn't change the outcome very much at all. It means that the gas generator will get 60% 60% of a certificate per megawatt hour instead of 50%. doesn't make a change whatsoever for the solar and the wind. If you make it 0.75, you suddenly get a psychological shift, not a modelling shift, because the model is quite insensitive to that number. But modern, ultra-supercritical coal generators operate at about 0.74 of a tonne per megawatt hour. So they just squeak in below a threshold of 0.75. So it's got no economic benefit of significance because you'd have to generate 60 or 70 megawatt hours with such a small proportion of a certificate to get as much, uh, to get a whole certificate. So it's not an economic driver, it's a psychological one that you get the, the stamp of approval, you get the badge that says you're under the clean energy threshold in the clean energy target mechanism. So the models themselves are not Um, very sensitive but the political sensitivity is huge around that number. As as we've seen so as the chief scientist and the architect of this report you'd be happy enough if the government settled on that 0.75 which would allow the clean coal to squeak in as you say onto the certificate? So it's completely up to the government I don't think it makes an actual substantial difference to the outcome of to how the market will operate in practice but the political ramifications are potentially quite significant. Let me invite the other two to comment on the notion that I feel after a pretty um, positive start to the clean to the Finkel review and the clean energy target, and there was a lot of endorsement from major sectors, major industries who, uh, you know, energy guzzlers and energy providers um, were right on board. But what seems to have happened in the last week in particular, in the last couple of days in particular, is we've entered some kind of culture war. On the one hand is the clean energy target, and the other hand seems to be coal. Now, given what you've said about the inputs not really being the issue, um, I want, I'll want i invite the other two to comment first on this, but Alan, please, um, come in too. Whether, is that where you think we're at at the moment and how do we get out of that position? Because that is a recipe for inaction, isn't it? 
is that too dangerous for you or something? <laughs> um, look, I think the there is a <clears throat> a spectrum of positions within the coalition. I, I, my observation would be, and I haven't sat in the party room by any means, although I was surprised to hear that the Minerals Council did, um, which was maybe a concern. Um, but the the spectrum is this: that there are people within that in that government who whose objective is one of two things, and probably both to use the Paris Agreement to bring down Malcolm Turnbull. Now, whether or, where he finishes on that is an extraordinarily interesting political tale, and it will go in history, whichever way it plays out. So there are those, right? They will Less never... Less to do with internal division over direction of the party than energy policy. Yeah. This, is, this, is the, this is by... It's not a token by any means, but it's certainly the, the battlefield on which this is being played, right? And it's been done before very successfully. And, of course, it's not helped because... They're organised. You know, I would. I would. The Minerals Council may very well have been trying to find, make a constructive uh, input to the debate, but you know, there is a history, I think, of damning things with faint praise. So what you do is you say, I think the Finkel Review is fabulous, except for the following three things, and then you use those three things to gradually deal away. So I think they will use that, and that will be picked up by people who are, I think, far more reasonable than the aggressive uh, end of the coalition, but those who are. Um, will listen to that because they will, that will raise their concerns about, oh my goodness, we're going to run out of electricity or coal or continuous dispatchable power, whatever it might be. And I want to come to that in a moment before I hand over to you with questions. But Marianne, did you want to contribute here? I suppose we've been trying to exercise our minds as to whether any policy initiative is required to get the desired outcome. Will coal come in in the foreseeable future. Because the costs of all the other technologies have come down. Um, it's very, very difficult to get financing. A lot of the banks will just not finance coal anymore. And uh, so potentially we're going to get the same outcome whether we do or do not have the CET. But what is needed is certainty in terms of emissions trajectory, in terms of um, the the level of emissions we'll have down in the, in the future. And if there is that acceptance of the recommendation of having a clear emissions trajectory through to 2050, then the clear signals are there that unless we get carbon capture and storage, the costs of which just keep going up and up and up, then coal is highly unlikely to come into the mix. Alan, do you want to come so in on Certainly this from um, our discussions with the practitioners in the sector, the part market participants, there was no indication that new coal would be coming in in the foreseeable future, but anything's possible, especially if the government wants to support it. But without government support and you go out to the market and raise money, um, it's going to be expensive to raise the money to build a coal generator. And we've been accused in the uh, press of using third world interest rates for the coal generators in the modelling. This is challenges to your assumptions. Challenging the assumption of, say, 14% interest rates to build a new coal generator. But when you speak to people, they'd say you'd be lucky to get the money you need at just 14% because there's such uncertainty in the, in, in the financing community for a big project like that in Australia. Another th comment I wanted to make was that, Fran, you're talking about what's been happening in the news in the last couple of days, but we've got to take the long-term view. Mm. This is a very fractious field. The, the discussion is shifting every day, and until final decisions are, are made, I think we're right to uh, be hopeful and optimistic that through the process that the Prime Minister and the Minister working with the party that they've initiated, which is saying that the minister will go to COAG with that endorsement of 49 out of 50 and with the message that the government has not rejected the uh, trajectory and the clean energy target, but is still 
working on it and analysing it and modelling it, I think we're in a fairly good position. And the last thing I wanted to say was I don't want anybody to think that we have made a single recommendation around climate policy. What we've done is recommend a mechanism to implement existing national government policy, which is reduce emissions across the economy um, at a certain rate. And we said if we adopted those figures just for the electricity sector, this is the most cost-effective, secure and reliable way of doing it. We haven't recommended climate policy. Um, I hope that no one in government suffers a fate worse than death as a result of anything we've recommended, but it won't be because we've stepped over the line and recommended climate policy. We took on board the terms of reference, which were to look at emissions, reduction, emission, sorry, security and reliability and affordability in the context or with consideration of the national emissions reductions. Okay, the trilemma to which you've added another one, which Correct. has just confused me. Um, just one last one from me before I hand over. Last week, the Prime Minister came up with uh, three announcements in the energy area, but one of them was announcing a task for the Australian energy market operator, AMO, to assess whether more continuous dispatchable baseload power is needed and how best to provide it. This is with some of the coal generation plants coming offline, you know, because they're ageing. Um, how best to provide it, optimising affordability and security for consumers. <coughs> and what new investment is required to provide it and whether government support may be needed in that investment. So I'm wondering if, by him doing that, does this suggest that the key aspects of your blueprint are either inadequate or already in trouble? Because wasn't that your task? So I'll take that. Um, so... The Prime Minister doing that is totally consistent with what's in our blueprint, which is saying here's how things should work, the market should operate, but if the market is failing to deliver, AEMO, the operator, should have reserve um, authority to procure generation to make sure that ultimately security and reliability are preserved. You would hope that that generation would be kept outside of the market and only being used in the case where the system just fails to deliver. So the Prime Minister is taking that and going a little bit further, given that we're in a transition. If we're in NEM 1.0 at the moment and we're going to NEM 2.0, the transition is difficult. Governments have to, um, they have a right to step in when as a result of a transition, things aren't working out as you would like. So I think it's an important right. But, but is that just, line... Can I just say one more thing on that? The Prime Minister didn't translate that necessarily into a coal-powered station. He was challenged to convert it into that statement, but he said it could be a gas generator yes. that fulfills the need. Yes, but then at what point does the investment into a mega uh, plant thing like a, a clean coal power plant or even a gas plant um, become such a presence that it does distort the market or, and, or a white elephant? I mean, like we've got, you know, desalination plants that never get used. Well, we've seen, you know, Already, we've seen South Australia announced building gas-fired power stations. Mm. Queensland are talking about the way they're going to run there and, and how wonderful it is they own their power stations. And so, I mean, one report we wrote recently, we talked about a stampeding herd of white elephants, um, the way this is all going. Now, but the, tr the trick here is, I think, that there's, there's how we navigate what I was describing is this tension. Because, you know... There's no way known a government isn't going to intervene if there's a problem of the sort we've already had. They, they, no, and everyone wants know, it to. right? However, the, what I think was being done, and again, I'm speculating, is that you've got a situation where people seriously, seriously are worried about if we don't have coal-fired power stations or continuous power, we're going to have a problem. So how do you satisfy that? One answer is, well, 
you ask the people with the most information, the people best to do that, to assess whether that would be necessary. And you describe how they would do that. Now, in th the potential there is the very fact you've said that's what they will do should be enough to satisfy those who are concerned that, okay, now we've got an answer. If it turns out that we need more whatever you want to describe continuous dispatchable baseload as I don't I, mean, I think they're all contradictory terms by the way but that's what the Prime Minister said if that's what you want to have then that may very well be the answer right now when AEMO actually does that evaluation you've got about four or five more steps before anyone would actually have a government building one of these things now the Prime Minister didn't rule it out that did not mean he ruled it in mm -hmm. so I, I think it you know I can still see this as a well reasonably well-structured strategic approach to dealing with the political challenge to navigate the Finkel blueprint through these very choppy waters. Yeah, I mean, you can't expect to get from A to Z overnight. Okay, your turn. Um, does anyone have a question for the panel? Yes, and can I just ask you all to wait for a microphone? There will be one brought to you here in the front row, uh, second row there. Thank you. Um, Howard Witt, uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, but I'm actually asking as a grandfather, um, Dr Finkel, you're the chief scientist, not the chief economist. If this blueprint was followed and other countries did a similar amount of reduction, would my grandchildren be safe? In other words, is this enough to uh, avert the climate problems? Uh, I agree with you. I'm not the chief economist. I have spent six months as the chief electrician, but I'm going to hang up that moniker too. Um, the answer is they would be safer we would be making more progress than if we don't do anything at all. And what we've recommended is a trajectory and a mechanism that can at least get us started on the journey that climate science would indicate that you have to follow. And if you think about the Paris Accord, it says that every five years, governments for countries around the world have to reevaluate their commitments with a view to tightening them, but never with any allowance for loosening them. We have recommended an architecture. It's a framework that can be used by future governments if they wish to um, uh, approach a, a steeper trajectory, but I would certainly recommend to any future government that you don't do things overnight. You need to sort of let things play out. And I think that what we've recommended is a, is a reasonable trajectory for now. Anyone else want to buy into that one or shall I go to the next question? Next question. There's one over here, I'm, and then one here. And thank you for that. And I do urge you all, as we always do at these events, it's questions, not statements. But I thank you. Thank you. Thank you, friend. Um, Martin Thomas, the Academy of Technology and uh, uh, and en Engineering. Uh, Alan, this question is addressed to you, and of course you know exactly what it's going to be. <laughs> um, oh, and. Uh, but, but nevertheless, um, I would like to hear your answer. But that said, may I applaud you as an engineer with the blueprint. You have dealt with so importantly with the issues of policy, uh, as Tony has rightly pointed out. And it is up to the market and uh, the technologists to decide what technology to use. Uh, that said, uh, in your rather pleasingly entitled chapter eight, beyond the blueprint, I like that, um, because it is. You've You've made that very clear, and you've got a number of technologies there. You do point out that nuclear power for many countries provides a secure, affordable, and zero emissions electricity supply. Uh, in other words, it meets, meets the four outcomes that you say policy should seek. Uh, nevertheless, um, nuclear power in this country 
although we supply uranium to those who use it, uh, is illegal. There are, f there are two Commonwealth Acts and three state acts. Um, I would have loved to have seen your report, but you told me you were going to stop short of this. Um, recommend that, that that legislation, at the very least, be um, subsumed, um, cancelled as a recommendation, as a first step along the road to a technologically neutral agnostic approach to the secure market we need in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Okay. Thank you. So I guess the question is, why didn't it do that? So um, it, it's, it's correct that I mean, if you're looking for what was a continuous, reliable, baseload power that happens to also be low emissions, nuclear can deliver. But our report is truly technology neutral. It's up to investors and governments to decide what's allowable. Uh, I would love to see a lot more um, catchment hydro. Hydro is also wonderful in terms of being synchronous generation, low emissions, dispatchable, all the things you could ever want. It's not going to happen in Australia. There are still places where you could build more dams with catchment areas, but it's not going to happen. The community doesn't have the appetite for that. The community is indicated again and again and again. It has no appetite for nuclear. Um, things might change in the future in that section in the chapter called Beyond the Blueprint, we talked about the fact that there is a new generation of SMR, small modular reactors, um, in the licensing process in America. And you could imagine that in five or ten years from now, when they're proven to work, if they're proven to work in America, that they could be adopted because they're much easier than the current generation of nuclear. But it's not going to help our current problems. It's not worth spending time on, in my opinion, at the moment. And there's another consideration. The economics of nuclear are changing around the world. In America, uh, nuclear licenses are being, applications are being withdrawn. And it's not because of local objections, it's because they can't compete with the cost of gas-fired electricity, because gas has become so cheap in uh, in America. And you're potentially going to see the same thing in California where they'll close down nuclear partly because of objections, but partly because they can't compete economically with wind and solar. So by the time nuclear small modular reactors get proven, they might not be necessary or might not have much to offer beyond the firmed up wind and solar and other variable renewable energies. And the economics, as you say, is what going to, it's going to should and drive the investment to some extent. And it seems to be changing so quickly. I mean, we had Andy Vesey from AGL saying, in their view, the dispatchable what is it? <laughs> dispatchable base, continuous dispatchable. The the economics of that are all around at the moment. Um, um, solar and solar and wind and battery. So uh, it's going to follow the money, I guess. I mean, when Andrew Andrew. Andy Vesey is talking, he's talking typically about solar and wind and gas, gas. generation. Yep. That mix is also incredibly powerful and quite economic. Yes. Um, now we have a question here in the front row. Can I have a microphone? And then one back there in the middle. Do you want to put your hand up again, sir? So. Thank you, Fran. Thank you, uh, panellists. It's uh, sadly predictable that the policy debate from this review has collapsed into people pushing it as a vehicle for their ideologies on climate change and not very much else. And that's not a bad thing because in my view climate change is the key element of energy security in the country. But in all your submissions you received and all of the consultations you undertook, what were the weightings of the other three factors, the security, reliability and affordability? I was intrigued by your pricing chart showing actually little or no difference between the various scenarios 
out to 2030 on pricing. So how important were the non-climate change elements of your uh, review? So starting with the last comment, I only showed you one chart, which was the pricing for residential. And there are so many things that contribute to that, um, that the price difference was around about 10% going forward. But for industrial, which is a lower price base, um, it gets more towards 15 and 20%. But as I said, it's only relative. Uh, in terms of how important was climate change um, and the other outcomes, every, nearly everybody was requesting a complete change towards integrating an emissions reduction policy with energy. So many of them didn't talk about climate change. You know what? It doesn't matter. The world that we live in has made a commitment to operate at a lower carbon emissions level. And that's the approach that most people are taking. We were not asked to look at climate science per se. And the vast majority of people said, just come up with a long-term integrated emissions reduction policy integrated with the energy policies. The, probably the second highest uh, would have been price, especially from the industrial users. Their businesses are under serious threat because of the high price, not only of electricity, which is at the moment really priced to a very high level because of gas, but also the, dir the direct use of gas, either as a feedstock or for direct combustion. So cost was a huge issue. Security and reliability comes up again and again and again, but I, I think that if you said what were people prepared to trade off, and um, I think, Marianne, you were talking about the balance that people would, um, that everybody here would have a different uh, opinion about balancing those four. Probably security and reliability, even though people say it's essential, they'd be prepared to trade that a little for lower costs, given where costs have gone to. And just to remind people where costs have gone to, I learnt tonight from Tony that Adelaide, on the 1st of July, when the prices are going to go up everywhere, will have the highest cost of electricity in the world. Unbelievable. Um, there's a question here. Do you have a microphone yet? Yes. Um, thank you, um, Dr Finkel, for your presentation and your report, and thank you, Grattan, for an excellent event. Um, Dr. Finkel, when you were appointed as um, chief scientist, you're quoted as saying, my vision f is for a country, society and world where we don't use any coal, oil or natural gas, where we have zero emissions electricity. I hope that wasn't fake news. Um, my, my question was, and my question is, um, is that still your vision and how does your report get us closer to your vision? So I did say that and um, it is my vision, but I didn't put a time frame on it. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons why you'd imagine a world that's running on electricity with almost no fossil fuels, because electricity is magic, it's just wonderful what you can do. You can use electricity to pump heat from the cold air outside into your house to warm your home more efficiently than directly burning gas. You can use electricity more efficiently and more pleasantly and more powerfully to, to drive your transport system. Um, electricity is extraordinary, but we can't get there rapidly. Uh, the current national electricity market, the electricity grids around the world, they're giant physical machines and you can't change them in a few years. You need to think many, many decades. Um, when we were travelling overseas, I, I asked a number of the energy operators, what's their vision for 30 or 40 years out? And actually, I was surprised that most of them didn't yet have a vision because they're more comfortable than we are because in Europe and America they have these interconnected uh, regions and so Denmark is the classic case where 
you know, they can get nearly all of their, their electricity for wind. But if the wind's not blowing, they can get about over 90% of their needs from interconnectors from Norway and Germany and the Netherlands, from hydroelectricity, from uh, nuclear fuel and brown coal and black coal. They've got this incredible diversity. So they're undergoing their transition quite strategically at the moment without worrying too much exactly what the mix will be 30 years from now. But in Australia, if we deny ourselves nuclear, deny ourselves coal, deny ourselves gas, which I think is a mistake, um, new catchment hydro. We are denying ourselves biomass as well. Um, we have to start thinking about how we will run our system. And we can do it if we take the time and do it methodically with wind, solar, intelligent grids, uh, storage. And there might be, it's hard to say, there might be an ongoing role for gas for many, many, many decades because you've always got those terrible once in a hundred year events which by the way happen a couple of times a year <laughs> uh, you know you can prove it mathematically probably in the probability theory it's how you ask the question but once in a hundred events just keep happening again and again and again so it's hard to get to that vision of what i called an electric planet with no gas at all but gosh you can get close but it's going to take a long time and if you rush it you risk security you risk reliability and you certainly risk having affordability the, the, Alan, the, this trilemma thing, it was interesting that the Prime Minister actually called it a trifecta. And um, I'm not sure what he meant by that. But if you go and look up no, the because two... Because if we get it all right, we're winners. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Like, but for me, winning all three is a trick. I mean, the, the tri they're not equal, and they're not even equal amongst people, as Mary Ann said, but also even the time, right? The way we think about these things is quite complex. Um, we're only concerned about security if we had a blackout recently. If we had to, you know, we just had to throw away all the contents of our fridge. And these days, that's not the most significant disruption we have to our world if the electricity goes out for a few hours. So you know, I think it's a very interesting dynamic, the way we think about these things very differently. And at times, there will be much more effort, emphasis on one rather than the other. So it's really challenging for someone to say, well, we're going to, as a government, rank these the following way, because the chances are they'll get that wrong too. Yeah, it's interesting because as you say that they're not equal or and this is the least, you know, the least prioritised one, for me I had the opposite reaction. I would have thought the reliability was one, the most important. Um, so there you go, we've proved Marianne's theory. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth mentioning, it, it was reliability and security probably when we started, but as the prices have gone up and up and up, I'd say price on average is the most serious concern people have. Marianne? Yeah, no, we've done quite a lot of analysis around this over the years and it does vary significantly from location to location um, and if you do a survey just after price prices have just increased, you'll get a very different response. And you referred to the desalination plant and the white elephants before. I didn't get a chance to interrupt there, but if you look at the Victorian situation before the one thaggy desalination plant was built and the government felt that it had to invest to get the security of the water supply and then, of course, it wasn't there and now everybody complains about yeah. the price increases that happened as a result. And potentially um, we have a risk with that, with this as well, that uh, we have a whole lot of initiatives, they add, um, they increase the price and people forget about the system black event. It's in the dim, dark past and all they then do is complain about the increase in prices. Complain, complain, complain. <laughs> we probably have room time for one more question if there is one uh, at the back there. No need to run, it's okay. They're not going to kick us out for a minute. 
Hi, Alan and, and Co. Thank you very much. Um, my question is around the consumer end. Hold it closer. The consumer end of the spectrum. We've talked about security and a lot of the conversations around the centralized components of the NEM. What, what view did you form on the risk to the NEM of consumer end or behind the meter generation disrupting the overall marketplace due to the rapid increase in the uh, viability of solar and storage at the, the household level and the small industry level? So we, we did discuss that a lot um, at panel. Um, you know, there is a concern of the so-called death spiral where people will start generating their own electricity with solar panels, storing it with batteries that are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and eventually disconnect themselves. Um, you can't actually prevent that. If, if people want to do that, they'll do it. The it, But it's, it's a bad thing in the sense that it puts the burden of carrying the costs of the static system on everybody who remains. So you certainly want to minimise it. And the only way you can minimise it, you can't minimise it by law, is by offering a better competitive product from the NEM itself. So we need in the long term to get the prices down um, at the same time as we're meeting all the other outcomes. But at you know, that disconnection issue is going to be driven by price. So we looked at price improvements that will come through providing predictability, and that's important. Uh, we commented on the long-term price um, trajectory of the transmission distribution poles and wires but through some comments on planning and the limited merits review and the government is talking about that a lot uh, that needs ongoing attention and i think the energy security board working with the bodies and the uh, the market bodies and the energy council will be able to help on that when it came to the third big component which is retail we certainly have a big chapter on that. We make some recommendations, but to a large extent, we defer to the ACCC review that is taking place at the moment and the Victorian government review that is taking place for Victoria at the moment. I think there's a lot that has to be looked at there. I don't think that anybody is cheating or gouging per se, but the retail system is complex. So there are a lot of hands touching every electron and therefore there's a lot of money being spent on things that don't necessarily efficiently translate into the delivery of the electricity. Those all have to be looked at, but we need to solve the current challenges around emissions reductions policy and invest certainty to give ourselves some breathing space around those other opportunities to look at costs. Can I um, hog the last question um, to come back to the title of this session which is forward thinking obviously that's what the blueprint is um, forward short-term forward and long-term forward um, but Tony and Marianne let me bring you in on this one too because uh, I guess now the chief scientist is allowed to go back to his day job um, but what happens next Tony because as we've said a number of times tonight we can't afford to go nowhere on this yeah I, the words I, mean, I don't think I'm going to use the word certainty used predictability and um, most people can make money if they can invest in a system that's um, predictable and 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 and, and uh, in the way even it's flexible it's, it's you know, predictable flexibility almost which is a sort of interesting t concept I think the, the the things that happen next well things will happen now firstly the coag energy council will meet my suspicion is I, mean, I I hear that the states have been very supportive of the of the Finkel review, right, and the panel, the blueprint, but there'll be elements in there which can only be tested in the detailed design. So the best outcome from that would be if the states would agree in principle to the recommendations, but they will reserve their judgment 
until they see exactly how some of that detail plays out. Because some of it, as I said before, does absolutely run into challenge some of the state-based policies. Now, the, rather than them reject it outright, one would hope that they will at least give it a chance that we'll actually see some constructive, you know, let it run, see how it goes, because it it'll come back to COAG over and over again. So it's not as though this will be the one and only opportunity. So that will be some part of it. The other part, I, I remain cautiously optimistic that enough compromise of the details of the clean energy target can be made, including that conversation we had before about the reserve powers of AEMO can satisfy enough of the members of the current government that they can find a way to support that. Now, that's still going to play out over the climate policy review, which is now taking place federally, because the, they made it very clear that the Finkel blueprint will feed into that review in terms of the actual broader climate policy to meet our 2030 objective. So that's how that's going to go. So I, and then, you know, if this government is unsuccessful, if either basic Turnbull says, guess what, you, know, you, you, you either, we either stick with Paris and do this or, or I'm out of here, that could be an interesting debate, we'll see, or alternatively there's a change of government and it's pretty clear what the, if they stuck to their current policy where the Labor Party would go and they would then either implement their emissions intensity scheme, which is not that much different from what the Finkel Reviews proposed, or they'll take what the current government puts in place and as Mark Butler said on Q&A, we'll just fix it. Now he'll increase it, he'll turn the dials, but the, 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 the blueprint's been designed so future engineers or operators can turn the dials. So I, I, I still, there is a way forward here, which isn't catastrophic for energy and climate policy. There are deep chasms either side of this precipice and we'll see if the governments can find their way to stay on the top of that. Marianne, do you have some thoughts on how the governments can skip over the chasms? Oh, it's, a, it's a huge, huge challenge and I suppose we were in this space probably a decade ago where the governments were fairly close to getting agreement and then basically we walked away from it and, and we are where we are. Um, unfortunately what we hear in the media, we often hear the extreme views only and it's almost um, need to band together as a society to get the middle view heard far more frequently so that um, the extreme views become what they are. They are the extreme views. And so that potentially provides uh, a government with more confidence about taking that middle ground. Mm. And Alan, we're terribly lucky to have you here tonight because I can't get you on my radio show but <laughs> no I know, I know you you know you're you're choosing to do a few appearances around the country which is great so we really appreciate your uh, presence tonight and your contribution is there any final thing you'd like to say about the way forward okay. after you've gone back to being the chief scientist not the chief energy I'll make, make one very brief comment and as a chief scientist I shouldn't but for me it's fingers crossed <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag fingers crossed. Alan Finkel, Marianne Lowey and Tony Wood, thank you very much for joining us tonight and thank you everybody for coming out. Also, thank you to Frank Kelly. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.